Okay, back at it again. Hard Talk Radio. Live in 4K. So, let's uh, get into these stories. Alright. First one up is the uh, shooting uh, by Denver police. The shooting of Jordan Wadi. Let's get into it. Hard Talk Radio, live in 4K. It's a police shooting with so many questions. I would want to know what was going through their mind when they took those shots. Six bystanders hurt as Denver officers fire at a man in a crowded lower downtown. Anytime you're in a big crowd, you definitely, when you see a gun, you need to make a split-second decision. Tonight, body camera video shedding new light on the shooting and raising new questions. You see the bystanders. You see the gun? Okay, you see a gun. But the thing is, like, if the gun's not pointed at you, okay, that has to be taken into consideration. And the, the, the person that is the person of interest is in the front of people. Behind in the bar. Tonight, we're taking you through this video and giving you multiple perspectives as a grand jury now launches its investigation. You can see with your own eyes and, and form your own opinion. And that is where we start tonight. Denver police just releasing video from last month a police shooting that left six bystanders injured in Lower Downtown. The DA today announced the grand jury will now investigate whether the three officers who fired at George Wadi just as bars were closing on July 17th will face criminal charges. In the days after the shooting, police said Wadi flashed a gun at the officers, and DPD released an image showing him appearing to take a weapon out of his jacket. A video released today shows Wadi taking out that weapon, tossing it, and putting his hands up before police fired. Separate angle shows an officer firing at Wadi despite a crowd of people behind him. Video from a nearby Halo cam shows that crowd scrambling for safety as police fired. Well, tonight we're going to take this story 360, offering you multiple perspectives so you can make your own decisions. You will hear from someone with a background in police training and the chair of the Citizens Oversight Board comparing the video to what we heard from police in the days after the shooting. You'll also hear from the attorney for Jordan Wadi, the man who was shot by police that morning. December 7th, Rob Harris begins our team coverage, taking us through the footage and hearing from a police expert about those key moments and how police are trained to react. Yes, the sequence of events was very fast that night. It was less than a minute from the start of the initial fist fight outside the Beer Hall to when police start shooting. The body camera footage released today shows that Jordan Waddy did have a gun, as police said last month. But as we said, it also shows that he threw the gun to the ground and put his hands in the air just before the officer started shooting. It was just about a sixth of a second between the time Wadi threw his gun to the ground and the first shot from police was fired. And in the seconds that followed, several more shots from police hit Wadi and six bystanders were all gone. I think the tough thing when someone reaches for a gun and you spot a gun is just how short a time period that can occur in. We went through moment by moment of the video with Stacy Herbie former patrol officer and now professor of criminal justice at Metropolitan State University of Denver. We first watched this body camera footage with her, showing the moment the Wadi throws his gun and officers open fire. The perpetrator has to act, the officer focuses in on the gun, and the brain tells the officer to reach 
act. I think what people don't realize is it then takes the brain a second or two to tell the officer to stop that action. And I think that's where it can get really tricky when these things are he threw the gun. Because we can watch this video three or four times um, versus the officer seeing, you know, in real time. Real time is much different. Why is it they would shoot so many times, especially if he had fallen to the ground after the first shot? You know, the protocol is to stop the threat or what you perceive to be the threat. Um, what some people don't realize is your brain can't stop on a dime. Next, we asked for me to break down this officer's body cam. Coming from a different angle, with the shots being fired towards Zwati and the bystanders behind him from the side. I think one thing that can happen to officers when they're in a situation like that, and they do think there is a gun, is you get a little bit of tunnel vision, which can occur, so you tend to focus on that the suspect who has the gun versus everything around you. Anytime you're in a big crowd, you definitely, when you see a gun, you need to make a split-second decision on whether it's safe to take that shot or not. Kirby says between growing violence in downtown Denver and high-profile mass shootings across the country, officers feel more pressure to react quickly when they perceive potential gun violence among crowds of people. Still, Kirby says there are important questions that need answered from police. What the officers' perceptions were, I I would want to know what was going through their mind. Also, if it was bullets or ricochets that hit the bystanders, I think that's going to be a really important question, too. Herbie says it's up to the city of Denver to address the growing violence downtown, but officers and civilians don't find themselves in harm's way. One thing she advocates for is staggered closing of bars downtown to avoid large groups of people on the streets late at night. Shannon, all right, Bob here. So I thank you, Rob. Videos raising so many questions. Bar, uh, club owners are not going to do that because late at night is when they get the most business. It's just how they are. If you it, it, it did the pretending um, pertaining to the hours of business, especially when it comes to business where you know you're providing entertainment. Um, the later it is, the more people you get into your business. The more people get into my into your business. The more money you are going to rake in. So they're not going to do that. It's common sense. About what we heard from police immediately in the days after the shooting. Why did Denver police only release a still image of Jordan Waddy pulling out his weapon and not a still of him tossing it away? Or why did police say officers fired at a brick backdrop even though the video shows Waddy was in front of a bar window in a crowd of people? Police are lying now. These police officers should be charged. Okay, people are gonna say like, well, he pulled out a gun. Did he pull it to aim at the cops or did he pull it to throw it away? Because he knew that's what he had to do. Put down your weapon. He threw it away. Okay. Get on the ground, hands behind your back. Okay. His hands is up. He put his hands up. They knew they were in the wrong because they lied. You put out false information for the public to, to inform them about. You inform the public um, with lies. So the, every cop that was involved in this and was okay with lying needs to go to jail.
Multiple times, Denver police defended their actions. Opening fire in lower downtown, where six innocent bystanders were injured, sharing a single photo of Jordan Waddy holding a gun. The subject eventually pulled out a handgun and held it in a manner that the muzzle of the gun was pointed in the direction of the officers who were on Larimer Street. He was pointing that firearm at the officers. But video released today shows Jordan Waddy. That cop who gave that statement, he needed to get fired. Tossing the weapon and putting his hands up before being shot. And the muzzle of the handgun was pointed in the direction of the two officers on Larimer Street. Body camera video appears to show Waddy grabbing the gun by the muzzle, not the handle, as he threw the weapon. Something that was immediately apparent to Julia Richmond, the chair of the Denver Citizen Oversight Board, an organization tasked with looking at police accountability. Looking at the video, not only is it clear that he was trying to throw the gun, but um, the gun is upside down on, at, at some point. DPD also defended their choice to shoot near a crowd. The officers were pretty clear that they had a clear shot and that the backdrop was the brick pillar or the interior of the beer hall, which had been cleared out because it was far close to the bar pusher to But video inside the bar shows the beer hall had not been completely cleared out. And there was a crowd of people standing in front of the bar, which erupts into chaos when shots rang out. Officers are trained to um, use their weapons when there's a hard backstop. Um, and so, you know, you firing into um, glass or, um, you know, something that's soft, uh, a crowd of people would be considered soft in this case. Now, we want to be clear, this shooting took place in a matter of seconds and acknowledge officers had to make tough decisions. Denver police say they only released a single still image of Jordan Waddy with a gun in their initial briefing to, quote, provide the public with information about the actions of Mr. Waddy and the officers leading up to the officers discharging their weapons. Shannon? Yes, you also talked with the attorney for that suspect, Jordan Waddy, who said this was an overreaction. Yeah, Waddy's civil rights attorney, Tyrone Glover, he told me that the body camera video shows his client was surrendering, and he acknowledges that police have to make split-second decisions but the way he sees it at that point, Waddy was not threatening or attempting to hurt anyone. You see, he's obviously thrown the gun. It's gone. It's like out of the frame. His hands are up. To me, that's not a split-second decision, you know? And, you know, they didn't just shoot him once. This isn't just split-second decision, one shot. Um, no, they fired on him six or seven times, and they fired into two different crowds while they were doing it. It's reckless, inexcusable. Glover told me Waddy's previous criminal record, in his opinion, doesn't matter in that moment and shouldn't be part of this discussion. But I did ask why his client had a gun given that record. He simply said, for protection. Well, um, look, I don't think this guy was a law, was a squeaky clean citizen. I don't think he was, you know, the you can see, you see in the video. All right, the man, Wadi was punching a man, okay? You see that, all right? The reality is when orders were given, when, when orders was given, he dropped, he threw the gun away. You clearly see that. Cops decide shoot anyway in front of people 
and then they lied about it. Lied about the club being cleared out. Lied about Waddy pointing the gun at the cops. Lied about Waddy was in front of a brick wall. They need to go to prison. Every last one. Modified duty, passports taken. Okay. Matter of fact, I, I just say no. You're all locked up. You're not going home. We can find some way to get out the state. All of them are flight risk. It's just so... It's unbelievable, man. It's unbelievable the corruption. That they would do, the links they would go just to cover themselves up. Alright? Now here's the Twitter... Twitter, uh, what they showed on Twitter, okay, of the Jordan Wadi shooting. Let's let's get into that. his hands openly tosses there you go That's as far as I go. Um, fair use. That's as far as I go. Okay. They, all those officers need to um, be locked up. And since the department wants to back these clowns, they need to be sued. GoFundMe counts put up. You know, sue those cops.
this out of Atlanta, another incident of police brutality. Here we go. Our talk radio live in 4K. You have cops being protected, okay, for idiotic um, decisions that they make, okay. And this is what you, this is what um, globalist elite will use puppet groups like Black Lives Matter to incite riots of the lower IQ masses to go off and start rioting and destroying businesses, you know, and hurting people economically because 
Those who are trained to protect and serve are not checking those who do idiotic crap like this. Embarrassing the cops who do their job correctly and making it harder for them to do their job without fearing um, being attacked because of the, incomp the incompetence of others. Okay. Speaking of incompetence, well, planned out just plain evil, we're going to be looking into the aftermath of Joe Biden's handling of Afghanistan and how the Taliban is capitalizing on it. Okay. Seven billion dollars in U.S. weapons. Practically lost into the hands of the Taliban. All right. Let's get into it. Our talk radio, live in 4K. Since President Biden's failed withdrawal from Afghanistan and Afghan citizens still begging the U.S. for help under Taliban rule. Some of those individuals left behind have gone into hiding, terrified about being discovered by the Taliban. It's a huge trauma, you know, trying to always contact my American supervisor, evacuation agencies, State Department here and there. And the most affected ones are my elder children and my wife. Paul Machano, an Army veteran, and Save Our Allies Vice President joins us now. Nick, good morning to you. Uh, you know, the U.S. left thousands of our Afghan allies behind during the withdrawal, and it sounds like one year later, a lot of those people are still in Afghanistan. Where do things stand right now? Yeah, there absolutely are a ton of people still in Afghanistan. Uh, we are still getting messages every day, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. We left people there, and we did not even plan to scale up the number of people from Department of State that were going to help process SIVs, that were going to help get these people to safety. We didn't do anything ahead of time before the withdrawal, and we're not doing enough now. The periods of time that people have to wait just for an interview, five months, six months, up to a year, Meanwhile, these people are trying to stay away from the Taliban, are in hiding, are trying to sustain themselves with no ability to work. It's incredibly frustrating. GOP House Foreign Affairs Committee saying, quote, the committee minority also has compiled proof that senior Biden administration political appointees. Strange thing, I thought Biden was for pro-women, you know. Um, if you look into it, the women are basically, you know, they're stripped of their jobs under Taliban rule. They're forced to basically go back into domestic lifestyle. Now, there's nothing wrong with a woman going, you know, doing domestic stuff, but um, they, are, they could be forced into situations where they're dealing with an abusive husband or abusive family members, and they, have, and they have no way of getting out of that. So I thought Joe Biden was for women's rights. You know? That's what I kind of wonder when you have women that vote for Joe Biden, especially minority women. And he's doing this to women overseas. He allowed this to happen to women overseas. And the feminists never called out Joe Biden for this. I wonder, why not? Hmm. Food for thought. Repeatedly misled the American public 
about the situation on the ground in Kabul, issuing wildly Pollyannish statements about progress at the airport and the Taliban's cooperation in carrying out the evacuation. That said, at the point where we are now, are there American allies being killed because we, as Americans, did not get them out in time? There absolutely are allies that have been killed. We have received WhatsApp messages from people that we had been talking to where all of a sudden, you know, someone from the Taliban received their phone and, and sent pictures of, of them no longer with us. Um, it is a terrible situation, and the toll that it takes on all of the volunteers is significant. There is not a day that goes by where people are not begging us with very real problems, and our hands are essentially tied. We have to wait for this Department of State process. Well, we interviewed a man uh, yesterday who goes by the alias AQ, um, and he helped the U.S. Army in southern Afghanistan for many years. He actually received a special immigrant visa, but then the State Department went dark on him. He says that he hasn't heard from them in six months, so now he's living and hiding, which is just so gut-wrenching. For, for obvious reasons, you mentioned the people who are dying, who we have an obligation to save. You also talk about the backlog at the State Department. What needs to change? Well, we need more people that are processing SIVs, and we also need a place to bring people. I spent, you know, two months this year in the Middle East trying to solve some of these problems. And one of the big issues is we can get people out of Afghanistan, but then there's no place to bring them. If they can't go directly to the United States, you essentially shoulder the burden of, of funding these people for months or even, in some cases, a year at a time. It's unsustainable for any NGO, so we need government support. Meantime, more than $7 billion worth of U.S. military supplies and hardware has been seized by the Taliban since U.S. troops left last year. That is My thing is, like, who... What president in their right mind would allow this to happen? That's what I say. Presidents are not elected. They're selected. And they have their orders by the higher-ups, okay, on what to do, how to handle certain, certain situations, whether it's for the good of the American people or people, period. And um, that's it. Whether it's right or wrong, whether it's immoral, that's what they do. And most of the time, it's immoral and evil. And they are to follow those orders. Or they will get deleted. That's how I see it. Okay. Especially you could look at the fact with Obama when he tried to talk to a black church when he was running for president and he was laying out some facts and they were the black vote was about to turn on him and he had to learn that he had to comply and play the game in order to win. That's what it's like. People want to talk about, oh, we could change the, the two parties from within. No, you can't. No, you can't. You even try, you will get deleted. Okay? They'll probably tolerate you for a minute, but then after that, it's like, okay, he's not playing ball. He has to go. It's an absolutely astounding number, Nick. Where are those weapons now, and what are they being used for? You know, so I'm not an expert in this, and I can't necessarily speak to what they're being used for, but the same thing that allowed all of those weapons to be taken is the same reason why there were only 36 officers by the State Department sitting in Kabul when I was there that were processing thousands and thousands of SIVs. There just weren't enough people. We did not plan to get people out, and we didn't plan to get equipment out. Hope is not a plan. Yeah, and that seven, uh, that seven billion number is new. 
uh, the Department of Defense just released their Inspector General's report and found that the Taliban has everything from howitzers to sniper rifles in their possession. Uh, before we let you go, you know, the U.S. just killed the leader of Al-Qaeda, who was living really in a nice apartment in Kabul, which raises a lot of questions about uh, the rise of terrorism in Afghanistan. Do you think U.S. troops will one day be back? I think it's very hard to say that we're not going to be involved in some form or fashion. And the documentary sent me that we have coming out August 26th. We talk about how on the ground, Taliban were literally shooting people in the crowd as a method of crowd control. And that's why while Americans were still on the ground, to think that it's going to be vastly different now that we're gone and the eyes of the world aren't on them, it's just a bad plan. Alright. I feel bad for those people, but you know the American government is it's corrupt. That's just how it is. Military industrial complex, it's just Alright. On to the next story. We're gonna be talking about Salman Rushdie. Okay. Many of you may have not heard of him. Um, he basically wrote about the satanic verses uh, exposing uh, Islam, and they put a fatwa on him. You know, um, that's basically the uh, just putting a hit. It's the Islamic the Islamic version of putting a hit on a person who, in their eyes, has offended Allah and Muhammad, his prophet. Okay. So, let's get into it once again. Our talk radio. Second. Now let's take a look at what else is making news across the world. This is Gravitas Global Headlines. A judge refused to grant bail to the man accused of trying to kill Salman Rushdie as the acclaimed author prepared to give a talk in Western New York. China issues its first national drought alert of the year as authorities mobilize specialist teams to protect crops from scorching temperatures across the Yangtze River Basin. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz faces grilling as part of investigations into a financial scandal, as the leader struggles to shed suspicion over his possible role in the tax scam. Sorry about that, bro. There. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, so I'll go into the uh, the article. All right. When it came to uh, Solomon Rushdie. Okay, 
So Solomon Rush is on the road to recovery. His agent confirmed Sunday, two days after the author of the satanic verses suffered serious injuries in stabbing in a stabbing at a lecture in New York. The announcement followed news that the lauded writer was removed from a ventilator Saturday and able to talk. Literary agent Andrew Wagey cautioned that although Rusty's condition is headed in the right direction, his recovery will be long. Rusty 75 suffered a damaged liver and severed um, nerves in the arm and in an eye and he was likely to lose. Whoa, that he was likely to lose. Uh, Wiley had previously aged, had previously said, sorry, though his life-changing injuries are severe, his usual feisty and defined sense of humor remains intact. Rushdie's son, Zafar Rushdie, Rushdie said in a Sunday statement that stressed, stressed the author remained in critical condition. The family statement also expressed gratitude for the audience members who bravely leaped to his defense, as well as police doctors and the outpouring love and support. Heidi Mato, 24, of Fairview, New Jersey, pleaded not guilty Saturday in attempted murder charges in what a prosecutor called a targeted, unprovoked, and pre-planned attack at Western New York's Chattanooga Institution, a nonprofit education and retreat center. The attack was met with global shock and outrage, along with praise for the man who, for more than three decades, including nine years, in hiding under the protection. It's an attack against his body, his life, and against every value that he stood for. Henry Reese, 73, told this Associated Press, the of asylum was on stage with Rusty's and suffered a gash to his forehead, bruising, and other minor injuries. They had planned to discuss the need for a writer's safety and freedom of expression. Authors, activists, and government officials cited Rusty's bravery and longtime championing of the free speech in the face of intimidation. Writer and longtime friend Ian McEwen labeled Rusty an inspirational defender of persecuted writers and journalists, and actor K.L. Penn called him a role model, especially many of us in the South Asian diaspora. Okay. Salman Rusty, with his insight into the humanity, with his unmatched sense of story, with his refusal to be intimidated or silenced, stands for essential universal ideals, U.S. President Joe Biden said in a Saturday statement, truth, courage, and resilience, the ability to share ideas without fear. Rushdie was born in India to a Muslim family who has lived in Britain and in the U.S., is known for his surreal and satiric prose, beginning with his Booker Prize-winning 1981 novel, Midnight's Children, in which he sharply criticized the, the then-Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Infused with magical realism, 1988's and Satanic Verses drew, dire, drew ear from some Muslims who regarded elements of the novel as blasphemy. They believe Rushdie insulted the Prophet Muhammad by naming the character of Mahmud and medieval corruption of Muhammad. The character was a prophet in a city called Jahira, which is Arabic, refers to the time before the event of Islam on the Arabian Peninsula. Another sequence includes the prostitutes that shared the names with some of Muhammad's nine wives. The novel also implies that Muhammad, not Allah, has been the Quran's real author. The thing is, though, <clears throat> you can't really tell the truth about uh, Islam. That has harmed many people, especially black people. Okay. And it's very much um, 
what the Taliban follows is very much the um, infringement on free speech, infringement on the rights of women, and uh, it has harmed a lot of people and has given the fuel for depraved human beings to do it without consequence. Okay, so on to the next story now. All right. Carefully talking about this one, though. Very, very going to be on, uh, you know, going to be very careful with this one. That's what I'll say. I'll be extremely careful with this one. That is what I will say. As kids head back to school, monkeypox cases continue to climb across Texas. We checked on the latest numbers for you just minutes ago. The state is reporting 991 total cases. That's up more than 100 since Friday. The city of Houston has 281 cases. Harris County is reporting 42 additional cases. Right now, county health officials are trying to figure out how a child could have caught the virus. It's the first presumptive positive in a child here in Texas. Stephanie Whitfield is live for us this morning in the newsroom with more on what parents need to know. Stephanie. Well, health officials want people to know what to look for, but they also don't want to cause any panic because the risk to children is still very low. Doctors say monkeypox is still mainly spreading through intimate contact, and the vast majority of cases is among adult men. That said, state health officials say there are now five cases confirmed in minors under 18 years old in Texas. We're told the young child in Harris County is under two years old, with no symptoms other than a rash, and no one in their inner family seems to be infected. The little one isn't in school or daycare, so now Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo says contact tracing is underway to figure out where they may have gotten the virus. I don't want parents to think this virus is running rampant in our schools right now because that's not the case right now. Now, we might get there if we're not able to continue this prevention. Yesterday, local health officials also announced a couple changes when it comes to vaccines. Now, people diagnosed with chlamydia and those living with HIV are eligible to get vaccinated. They're also changing the way shots are administered. All right. Hmm. I don't know. It's just... Okay, so what... Um, going on what was said about the uh, monkeypox, my thing is, how did kids get it? I'm just saying, how 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 did they get it? It, it just you know, it just doesn't. Uh, it just doesn't uh, really. I'm just saying, it just, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to think about when it comes to that, and um, 
Let me know in the comments how you feel about that. What is, what is, what is your uh, thoughts on that? What are, what are your thoughts on that? What do you think when it comes to this uh, situation that we're dealing with, the, the monkeypox? All right. Now, we're going to be talking about a particular person now, and I, I would say that the NFL really, they, they really need to start um, having an overhaul. They need reform. Okay? They need to be reformed. I know it sounds kind of corny and political, but uh, they really do. They, they, they need to have a sit down and they need to talk about the types of athletes, individuals that they draft to play in their games, to bless with a lavish lifestyle. All right. They need to talk to them. They need to. I'm sorry. Let me um, backtrack on this. They need to have a sit down and talk about the type of individuals they want to play for them and represent their teams. Okay. And they need to even have more um, counseling, especially for athletes who come from certain types of backgrounds, home environments. Because some of these athletes, they come from really banged up situations at risk home environments and then when you get this money this prestige they lose it all through bad decisions and i i think that's because there's not really a mentor there to help them to tell them tough love to not be a yes man around to tell them the hardcore truth of what will happen if they make a bad decision okay some of these men grow up without fathers and they really need counseling and they really need guidance or they grew up in a, an environment where, you know, everything was banking on them making it to the NFL. And they need to be taught there's more to life than the NFL. Okay? And they need to be taught, they, they need guidance, period. But enough about me saying that. Let's get into the particular individual that I'm going to be talking about on this live stream. Bar Talk Radio, live in 4K. Kind of buy. 
All right, so, you know, my thing, like I said, again, um, I think they shot themselves in the foot getting somebody like Watson, okay? All this, they have to, all this adjustments. You got a guy who, you wanted this guy to be a, a leader, and he doesn't show that. It's just a thing he can play, all right? And that's the thing. I think the NFL really has to start doing a reform and an overhaul and this mindset of like okay you can play so we're just gonna still bypass your wrongdoings no matter how heinous it is and that has to stop alright that has to stop because it's embarrassing the team the fact that he was messing around with women in the massage parlor I'm like and um, 
like I said, it's just going to go downhill. Because eventually, you know, these NFL athletes are going to do something that is going to cause a huge backlash. Alright. Alright. On to the next story. Seems like it's on the process to getting justice for this cab driver. All right. Well, we're getting a first look at two of the suspects charged in the brutal beating death of a cab driver in Queens. Lisette Nunez is outside the 101st Precinct in Far Rockaway with more for us. thing I always wanted to ask some black people okay the mother <clears throat> sorry the wife is forgiving right and I don't think I'll hear any peep out of you know um, other blacks because the crime was against another was another a black person black people against another black person I came to the anger um, Amber Geiger situation with forgiveness Blacks were in uproar. So, do blacks get a pass forgiving others of the same color of skin? But if you forgive a person of a different color of skin who offended you, all hell breaks loose. Is it? Is it that way? Is it that way? Does forgiveness have a color now? You have to be on code when it comes to forgiveness. Just a question. Because the reality of how I see it is the fact that forgiveness is not a fact of Letting them get away scot-free is the fact to give you peace. Whereas unforgiveness is basically drinking poison and hoping the person that offended you dies. Um, that's basically how I see it. No, did I not think that Amber Geiger should be getting, should be getting off scot-free? No, I do not. I think she has to pay the price for her actions and her incompetence. Period. Okay? Also the fact with text messages showing that she doesn't like black people okay um, that being said let's keep it going Saturday morning 52 year old Kutin Jima was dropping off five passengers along Beach 54th Street in Far Rockaway investigators say the group didn't pay their fare and tried to rob Jima before Jima chased them Police released this surveillance video of the horrific attack. Detectives say the video shows two men and three teenage girls. 
worlds. The group is seen kicking and punching Jima in the head. Jima hits his head on the pavement, lost consciousness, and later died. It was everything we had. It was my children's hero. It was my bad boy. And they didn't think twice when they had Kooten on the floor, beating him, kicking him, and ultimately killing him. So although they're kids, they need to pay for the crime that they committed. Police identified one of the individuals in the video as 20-year-old Austin Amos. NYPD Commissioner Sewell posted on Twitter this morning that one of the suspects has been charged with manslaughter. Abigail Jima sending this message today to the other suspects seen in the video. I'm telling them... 20-year-old is not a kid. Just saying. Turn them selfies because they're going to be caught. Just a few minutes ago, we did show you those two suspects. So Austin Amos, he's been charged with manslaughter and gang assault, while Nicholas Porter, he's been charged with gang assault, among other charges. We're live in Far Rockaway. I'm betting that these kids were raised by single moms. Okay, if you're a single mom and you're doing your job raising your kids, don't come for me. This is not about you. If it doesn't apply, let it fly. Um. These uh, kids have to, they're not kids when I keep saying that. Um, young adults, they have to pay for their crimes, all right? And these single mothers are just gonna have to watch their kids get processed. That's it. Because, you know, you're crying, you'll be crying, my son, my son, my son. Well, that was somebody else's son that they killed, okay? Because they refused to work and earn a living, okay? And sad to say that a lot of crime is happening, all right, in our streets. And parents have to be very firm with their kids and help them get jobs, you know, do what you have to do to make sure they're on the straight and narrow because there's still law and order. All right, let's get on to the next story. Unfortunate situation. Um, I have my thoughts when it comes to this. But uh, let's get on with the story. California. Right now, we are, we just got over this scene here. Uh, we're getting reports that two planes collided, uh, resulting in multiple fatalities. You can see there one of the planes pretty far from the tarmac there. And emergency crews, that fire truck there, police on the scene. Okay, we know a little bit more as well. So multiple agencies are responding to a plane crash in the city of Watsonville that has resulted in multiple fatalities. Uh, that is according to Watsonville Police. This is south of San Jose. Two planes collided in the air at Watsonville Municipal Airport after attempting to land. So right now we don't know the extent or the number of fatalities. We know they have said there are multiple fatalities. We don't know 
and uh, we apologize there. It looks like our shot is either repositioning or, or leaving. Oh, zooming back in here, good. So there you can see kind of um, the crash debris as well on the tarmac. So this is a very, very small airport. Watsonville is a very small town. This does not take, obviously, commercial aircraft. This is small private planes who fly in and out of here. Earlier, we uh, off offline, we were looking at this shot, uh, and you can see one of the planes essentially had crashed uh, into one of these hangars on site on the airfield. And hopefully, the, the chopper does show us that as well. So you can see, oh, you can see there uh, the yellow police tape that is up, the fire trucks that are on scene, the emergency crews uh, there as well. So hopefully we'll be getting updates uh, from these officials about exactly what happened. But several people are believed to be dead. Officials are not yet confirming the number or the identities of the deceased. This is in Santa Cruz County, south of San Jose. And we're going to get a better, better vantage point. Bear with us while the shot stabilizes here. All right, we're going to move away from that. Let's take this tweet right here that we have. Apologize. Okay, this is the city of Watsonville. Tweeting out this photo of that hangar that we were about to show you. And we're going to wait for the uh, the chopper's shot to uh, correct itself. But there, there's the tweet. Multiple agencies responded to Watsonville Municipal Airport after two planes attempting to land collided. We have reports of multiple fatalities. The report came in at about 2.56 p.m. local time. So that was my question. You know, did these planes collide taxiing on the tarmac or in midair? And so it looks like the city of Watsonville is saying they collided midair. They were both attempting to land. We're going to leave this tweet up. We're going to hopefully get more information. Uh, but if you're familiar here, oh, this is Fox 2 in the Bay Area. They say according to the FAA, so now the FAA is getting involved here, a single-engine Cessna 152 and a twin-engine Cessna 340 collided while the pilots were on their final approaches to Watsonville Municipal Airport. Also, one person was on board the Cessna 152 and two people were on board the Cessna 340. No injuries were reported to anyone on the ground. So it looks like, if I'm going to be doing my math correctly here, three fatalities, it looks like. And so this is coming to us from KTVU Fox 2 in the Bay Area. We're going to go back out to that shot. Uh, it does look somewhat steady here. It looks to be frozen a little bit, but it's over where one of those planes crashed into this hangar here. very tragic accident mid-flight both these planes trying to land and if you're not familiar with california or northern california this is in watsonville this is in santa cruz county south of san jose so remember this is a very small airport it's not open to commercial air traffic they don't have commercial flights only two runways and so there you can see this is what we were really waiting for here, the extent of the damage of one of these hangars, one of the planes crashed.
So remember, we were reporting multiple fatalities due to this crash. One person was on board one of the planes and two people were on board the other. So it does look like uh, like we've been seeing multiple fire engines are on site, police are on site, the FAA is involved now, no doubt uh, in situations like this, the NTSB gets involved to figure out what exactly happened uh, in that investigation that no doubt will take place uh, in the hours and days ahead. But this was um, presumably a very, very tragic accident there you can see the extent of the damage to the hangar itself you can see hopefully the chopper will pull back out uh, and we can see the other down plane it looks like they're going to do that maybe they're going to reposition maybe they're going to go away from it in the meantime though we're going to keep you updated on this story we're going to take a quick commercial break hopefully more details when we come That's, um, it's unfortunate, uh, what happened, but, all right, let me get into the, the article about it, okay, all right, so, um, at least two people were killed when two planes collided while trying to land at an airport in North Carolina Thursday afternoon, officials said the planes are twin-engine Cessna 340 and a single-engine Cessna 142 crashed into another just before 3 p.m. above Watsonville Municipal Airport. According to city officials, the two aircrafts um, The two aircrafts carried a combined total of three people, but it's clear that there was any survivors. It's unclear. Two people on board the Cessna 340, which veered into the wing of the Cessna 152, sending the smaller plane crashing into the edge of the aircraft, according to the Federal Aviation Agency and witness. <clears throat> the deadly crash occurred as two planes were about 200 feet in the air, Frankie Herrera, who was driving by the airport at the time of the crash, told the Santa Cruz Sentinel. The smaller plane has just spiraled down and crashed, Herrera, on an off-duty officer said. The plane landed about 100 feet from the houses, according to the local outlet. First responders placed a tarp over the aircraft's smashed cockpit. Herrera said the larger plane continued its descent but was struggling. Then he saw a burst of flames from the other side of the airport. The photo of the crashed aftermath shared by the city shows a building with its exterior wall caved in as the plane parts lay inside. Another photo showed the mangled wreck of a small plane in a grassy field. No injuries were reported to the people on the ground. The city-owned airport, which has four runways and is home to more than 300 aircrafts, handled more than 55,000 operations a year, mostly recreational or agricultural businesses. This also doesn't have a control tower to direct pilots coming and going. 
Why don't you have a control tower? The FFA and the National Transportation Safety Board are investigating the crash. The collision is the third plane crash in which people were injured across California on Thursday. Earlier in the day, a 65-year-old San Diego man was seriously injured when a single-engine plane crashed on a street and struck a SUV near a busy freeway overpass in El Cajon, authorities said. The pilot's injuries are not life-threatening, and no one on the ground was hurt. Later, an ultra-light aircraft crashed upside down on a building at the Camillo Camarillo Airport in Ventura County. The pilot was critically injured. That is something. I hope the the investigation comes up uh, to be fruitful, and they have some information to give the public. All right. Now some information that I'll be trying to get to you guys in a minute. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. All right. Hold on one second. Information on this. information
Here I go, taking a risk. Alright, here we go. Hard Talk Radio, live in 4K. June, we broke the story about a black. Hmm. Yep, give me one minute. Give me one minute. to the ground and arrested by county marshals before she could get dressed. Things went left after they arrived to serve an eviction at her boyfriend's apartment. She says that when she went to go put clothes on, officials manhandled and arrested her. Now the shade room has the full body camera video detailing exactly what went down. I'm Justin Carter. This is a TSR Investigates update.
her to put on clothes she's gonna close the door because she has to get ready so this is this this looks kind of awkward all right this looks real awkward trying to tell <sighs> looks awkward give her some time to get dressed give her at least 15 minutes and then knock on the door. You didn't give her time to follow orders. She had to close the door. Strangers in her house. Let her put her clothes on first. Give her a time limit to put her clothes on. Then get a female cop to come by to the to the site where you're handling this stuff. And that's it. Just to cover bases. I, I... Yeah, she's agitated because she doesn't even know that she's being evicted. Her boyfriend did not give her the knowledge of being evicted. Okay. 
unfortunately, this is, you know, a, a situation where, um, you have to be careful who you choose to have kids with. And this dude obviously thought he could skate by not paying the rent. He didn't give her time to. Her boyfriend arrives to retrieve their daughter. He spoke to the arresting marshal who claimed that it was Baskerville who was the aggressor. It's different. She was talking, whatever, but she decided to fight two grown ass men who got kids the same way you got kids. That is a lie. That is a lie. You didn't give her a chance to change her clothes. You told her, don't close the door. What do you mean, don't close the door? She's got to change. This is a lawsuit right here. After, 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 after she closed the door and my face, no. That's it. Baskerville was checked out by EMTs for her arm and taken to the Fulton County Jail. As soon as I talked to the, you know, the judge and the prosecutors, they immediately dropped it. There's all these people out there that say, Hey, listen, if Jemana would have, you know, complied and would have, you know, been quiet. Where was the time to comply? Fair use, fair use. And would have did what they were, did what she was supposed to do. Maybe she wouldn't have been in this circumstance. What is your response to that? I always like to ask that. I feel like I, I, I did do what they asked me to do because he told me to go get dressed. He didn't tell me where to get dressed at. The, my first instinct was to go in the bedroom and get dressed. Records show that Baskerville's boyfriend owed about $1,600 in back rent before the marshal's office arrived to serve that eviction. Now, in the body camera footage, you can also hear him say that he was aware of the eviction, but he was just waiting on a court date, which was never given. Now, according to a spokesperson for the marshal's office, they say that no policies were broken in this case, and they hope that by releasing this footage, it sheds more light on what happened that day. Shows, shows more light that the officers were in the wrong. That's a lawsuit pending. And you lied to the to her boyfriend. Okay? Man, they look like clowns. These cops look like bona fide clowns. That's all I see here is just clown work. Alright. next story is uh, very sad and I hope that things work out for the best I really do
get into it. Tonight, the rush to rescue 10 workers trapped hundreds of feet underground in a northern Mexico mine, growing dire as the effort stretches into a second week. Frustration and anger mounting for anxious families clinging to any shred of hope they'll get to see their loved ones again. My son is still trapped down there, she says. Officials say a tunnel wall collapsed on August 3rd, triggering an explosion of rushing floodwaters from an adjacent shaft trapping the miners ages 22 to 61, about 200 feet underground. You can see the depth as crews rappel down. The effort hampered by surging water and debris gushing into the mine. Authorities say they need the lock for responders to gain access, but water from a nearby mine keeps flooding in. Now, the Mexican foreign ministry calling on both U.S. and German companies for assistance, but family members say it's been far too slow. I feel they are alive, but as more time goes by, what will happen to them? Among the missing, Jose Rogelio Moreno Morales and his son. The family begging officials to let them search themselves. I want to hug him, and I ask God for him as my gift this little girl said about her uncle. But now, exactly two weeks without any sign of life, hope that was once for a speedy rescue is now for a miracle. Steve Patterson, NBC News. Tonight. Okay. And I'm sorry, that part right there when they said, like, you know, the, uh, the family wants to go and you know try to get their family members themselves and they're not being allowed to do so and they the family is seeing that it's taking too long to do it i'm sorry it reminds me of the uvalde shooting it really does it really does i'm not trying to be disrespectful to those people I'm just saying the fact that it really does because they're willing to go in there and find themselves the process to get them out is taking too long it, it, it just gives me those vibes the last thing Raimundo Tierra Emaya 33 said he remembers from inside the coal mine was a bang a gust of wind and then water everywhere. The water kept pushing him down as he waved his arms around trying to swim. He doesn't know how he emerged. He thinks maybe air pressure pushed him so he could be rescued. I had given up my arm, given up. My arms were tired. I had given up. I just couldn't tear who earned 4,000 pesos a week or $200 working at the mine. Just $200? He told Media Telehendro Regional. Tejina is one of the five workers who escaped from the El Pinabete coal mine in the northern Mexico state of Caraulia after it flooded on August 3rd. But more than two weeks later, 10 workers, including one of Tejina's brothers, remained trapped 
with flood waters of more than 130 feet. Efforts to rescue them, dead or alive, have faltered alongside harsh conditions and accusations of government ineptitude. This is what I'm talking about. Uh, if they aren't dead from drowning, they are dead from exposure. It's cold and damp in those mines, said Jack Spadaro, a mine safety and environmental expert based in West Virginia. Probably all entries into the mine are plugged with water, so there is no ventilation. Even if they are in a safe place, it's going to be a limited amount of time for them to live because of the depletion of oxygen. The tragedy of the unfolding 80 miles south of the Eagle Pass, Texas, has enraged relatives of missing miners who have criticized Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador for moving too slow and not doing enough. It also raised questions about an industry that has offered an economic pillar for revival impoverished communities in Mexico, but where accidents happen with alarming regularity. The disaster at El Penanapente occurred around 1.35 p.m. when miners when mine workers breached a neighboring space filled with water, triggering flooding in three mine shafts that reached more than 100 feet, according to Mexican authorities. Immediately after, engineers used more than a dozen pumps to bring water levels down to between 16 feet and 30 feet. Mexican army divers then attempted to carry out a search mission, but heavy debris, including planks of wood, obstructed their process. Then on August 15th, water levels in the mine once again surged, reaching 135 feet in one shaft because of the water seeping in from the nearby Colcas, Concas Norte mine, which shut down in 1996 due to flooding of its own. Engineers are now working to seal off the two mines from each other while continuing to pump water out of El Benepente. Spadardo, who also served as the director of National Mine Health and Safety Academy from 1996 to 2004 said the mining accident should never have occurred. The water stored in the adjacent Concas Norte's mine should have been drawn out before mining began in the Pinabente mine. And an accurate mine map should have been consulted so there was at least a 200 feet separation between the old mine workings and the new mine, he said. What has happened? There's an excusable in this day and time. There's plenty of technology available to the mine operator that could have been used to prevent the flooding. Oh boy. Lopez Abrado was asked at a daily press conference on Thursday why engineers didn't attempt to seal off the two mines sooner. It's a matter of technicians and specialists and the miners who know the terrain very well. The president responded before launching into a criticism of journalists questioning the authorities' response. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this this incompetence all the way. Evaldi vibes. Several relatives of the missing miners have accused Mexican authorities of lying to them, dragging their feet, and even using their pain as a photo opportunity. Lopez Obrador's visit to the mine on July 7th, when he promised there would be justice, did little to quell their anger. Yeah, man. This, this is... Uh... Another Uvalde situation. Just this isn't a school shooting. It's a incompetence of the person that's supposed to be head of in charge. All right, that's all I'm giving for today. Hope you all were informed by this live stream hope everything 
during this live stream was to your liking. And uh, if you like it, you know, feel free to like, share, comment, and subscribe. Anything you want to know about this channel is in the description box. Okay, later.